And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good. We're stuck in the post Christmas, pre New Year's Eve neutral zone. Neutral zone, that's a good word. I think when this episode comes out, it will be New Year's Day, however, right? Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Happy Happy New Decade. Yes. Though I think technically the new decade doesn't start until 2021. Yeah. But I don't know Mm -hmm. why that's a thing. Well, because you don't, when you count, you don't start at zero. So you go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Yeah, but zero is implied. No, no, no. Like in... Like, there's no year zero. Like, there's 1 BC, and then there's 1 AD, so the first decade would be 1 to 10. The second decade is 11 to 20. Oh. So on and so forth. This is also why everyone... climactic. Well, it's... (laughs) I don't know why you would say that. Um, This is... It's just... It's just that human beings are obsessed with, like, whole numbers and things like round numbers you know so it's like oh 2020 is a big deal right yeah, same reason why big like old zero there's it, two big old exactly zeros. there's two twos and two big old zeros right well it's the same reason people were like oh the year 2000 and then you had like pedants being like actually the new millennium's 2001 the point is is that years and time are both like social constructions and not real mm-hmm. and just things that we arbitrarily agree on because like in the Hebrew calendar, it's a completely different number. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm sorry to start a rant out of you. <laughs> sorry. The point is, is that if you want to say that 2020 is the new decade, that's totally fine. And if you want to say it's 2021, that's also totally fine. You're both right, because it's all made up. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So what are we watching? Today... Let's start this year <laughs> off with further pedantry. Yes. Today, today, Sarah, we are watching... Devil Bat's Daughter from mm. 1946. And this wouldn't have anything to do with, say, Dracula's daughter, would it? I mean, that's an interesting connection to bring up, yeah. Sarah, because yes, this is a sequel to The Devil Bat from 1940. The Devil Bat starred Bella Lugosi. Mm-hmm. This film does not have Bella Lugosi in it, but has a lead character who is Bella Lugosi's character's daughter. Okay. So you are sort of very apt in comparing it to Dracula's Daughter, I guess, which is also a sequel to a Bela Lugosi movie that has no Bela Lugosi, but the lead character is Bela Lugosi's daughter. So, since it has been so very long since 1940, why don't you recap us The Devil Bat for those in the audience who might not remember the particulars. Who missed this gem. Yes. This gem of a film. If you do want to go take a listen back, it's episode 81. The Devil Bat is directed by Gene Yarbrough Mm -hmm. for PRC, high-quality movies coming out of PRC. Mm -hmm. And as Ben said, it stars Bela Lugosi as a Dr. Carruthers. Yes. Which, if you recall, we had a really good kick out of because we had a film prof named Dr. Carruthers. Yes. Also, I think it's just funny whenever Bella Lugosi is playing characters named, like, Paul Carruthers, because it's like, <laughs> it's Bella Lugosi, guys. Like, he's not, 
Yeah. I know. It's like when Arnold Schwarzenegger plays characters named, like, Frank Smith. It's like, come on, guys. Let's... People can change their names. <laughs> okay. People immigrate. Right. And want to change their names. Sure. Because of anti-immigrant bigotry. Sure. <laughs> so, Dr. Carruthers. He works as a chemist and a doctor in Heathville, so named because of the Heath family owning and operating a very successful perfume plant. Okay. Now, Dr. Carruthers works with this perfume company to develop new scents. And dollar bills, am I right? Um, <laughs> scents and dollar bills. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. The Heaths give Dr. Crothers a $5,000 bonus, but Dr. Crothers resents this, as the business actually earned millions of dollars that year. So to take revenge, Dr. Crothers has enlarged bats and has trained them to kill anyone wearing a particular scent. Now, when you say enlarged, what, what are we talking about here? I'm talking like... So, like, if you think of, like, the average American bat, Mm -hmm. it's, like, maybe, I don't know, two hands wide in terms of its wingspan. These things are, like, like giant fox-type bats. Like, just huge. Like, big enough to kill a man. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Which they do. (laughs) They end up killing one of the company's owners and his two sons. And this prompts a Chicago paper to send hotshot reporter Johnny Layton to cover the story. Wow, I don't remember him. He and his photographer begin to solve the mystery, ending with Dr. Crothers being attacked by his own bat creation. Mm. And the last surviving company owner, Mary Heath, falls in love with reporter Layton. Sure. The end. Right. It is ranked number 96. (laughs) (laughs) I remember having a lot of fun watching it because it's very bad. Yes. Um, and the it's like a lot of fun. the giant bat effects are ridiculous. Yes. They like toss this big rubber bat out a window and make a screaming sound. Ah. Um. It's it's a lot of fun. I do remember talking too about like there being some unintentional. I don't know if you'd call it irony, but like with the idea that like Lugosi's character is wanting revenge because. He took, like, a one-time down payment instead of taking, like, a percentage on profits. And now that's, like, screwed him over. And it reminded us of how, like, you know, Lugosi could have had a bigger career, but, like, made some bad choices early on that screwed him over. Yeah. So when he's, like, taking revenge and, like, performing that very vengeful look, mm-hmm. you you feel like there's a little bit of, like, reality behind it. Sure. All in all, it's a fine film. Uh, It doesn't really leave much in the way of sequels, though. Right, because everybody's dead. Yeah, except for the breeding pair. Right. And his photographer. Right. (laughs) So, The Devil Bat, believe it or not, was actually one of PRC's most successful releases. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Hence why it formed the basis for semi-remakes like The Flying Serpent, and why now we are seeing a sequel. Now, this uh, sequel is directed by Frank Wispar. Okay. And so it is actually his follow-up to Strangler of the Swamp. Uh, It's the film he made right after that. Okay. However, it would be his final horror movie that he would make in his career. Um, After this, he would make a few more 
uh, PRC cheap American films before moving to television in the 1950s, where he would direct over 200 episodes of Fireside Theater from 1950 to 1955, uh, before finally returning to Germany, making movies there about the Nazi era and World War II uh, in the late 50s and early 60s before passing away in 1967. Well, that's kind of nice to hear that he gets into television, because that's a regular paycheck. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I so mean, good for him. 214 episodes, I think, of Fireside Theater over yeah. a course of five years. Yeah, like, that's that's good. That's a good chunk of dime? TV. Oh, TV, yeah. Also dime. <laughs> <laughs> now, Wispar wasn't actually interested in doing, like, a straight sequel to Devil Bat in the sense that he wasn't interested in making a movie about, like, a giant bat killing people. Um, Instead, he hoped to do something more in line with the psychological horrors being put out by RKO, by Val Luton. That is kind of in line with what we've seen from him in the past, both with Strangler of the Swamp and Fairman Maria. Mm -hmm. So to this end, uh, writer Griffin J was instructed to reinterpret the events of the first film in his script, such as to allow for the story Wispar wished to tell in the sequel. So there's some retconning that's going to be happening here. Yeah, but that's, you know, to be expected. Especially like from... Universal did it all the time. Well, especially from Griffin J, who is actually a familiar name to us. Uh, he wrote The Mummy's Hand, The Mummy's Tomb, Captive Wild Woman, Return of the Vampire, The Mummy's Ghost, and Cry of the Werewolf. Return of the Vampire is actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Some of those other ones you listed are... Not. But he does have the experience in, like you just said, the universal sequel, like, continuity thing of, like, slightly tweaking what happened in the last movie to make this movie work more. And also interesting takes on things. Mm. The Devil Bat's Daughter is actually Griffin Jay's final screenplay. Uh, He would pass away in 1954 at the age of 49. So a lot of crew on this movie is returning from Strangler of the Swamp, for instance, Bud Westmore on makeup, uh, Alexander Steinert on music, James S. Brown Jr. on cinematography. Um, Also returning is actress Rosemary LaPlanche, who was the former beauty queen who starred as Maria in Strangler of the Swamp. Uh, Here, she plays the daughter of Bela Lugosi's character from the first film. Devil Bat's Daughter was released on April 15, 1946, to negligible critical or commercial attention. Oh. Um, It is today in the public domain. Uh, It had a DVD release in 2002 from Image Entertainment that's now out of print and very expensive. You can also stream it on the streaming service FlixFling, but since it is in the public domain, you can also find it on the Scream Scene YouTube playlist. So I'm not surprised that it wasn't, like, a critical hit. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. but from what it sounds like, it does not rake in the coin in the same way that the Devil Bat does. Correct. Okay. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. But, I don't know. We'll, we'll take a look for your folks. We'll keep an open mind. Yeah. If you do want to watch along, check out our YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Devil Bat's Daughter... From 1946, directed by Frank Visbar. See you on the other side, everybody.
Welcome back everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Devil Bat's Daughter from 1946, directed by Frank Visbar. You know, Ben, as we move through these movies, mm -hmm. and especially these older movies, right? there's always a risk for a movie like this, but I guess I just truly wasn't expecting a movie called Devil Bat's Daughter to have barely any scenes with said daughter. <laughs> sure. Um, what, uh, what, um, what do you mean by a movie like this? You know, a movie uh, where it just focuses on the male characters talking about her or around her, where she's barely, you know, barely has anything to do with their lives, despite the movie presumably being about her. She's a prop. Like, she's yes. a MacGuffin. Like, she is the Death Star plans. Yeah. Like, she is a she is a thing that enables the plot to continue, but the movie isn't particularly about her. And when she is on screen, let's gaslight the shit out of her. Well, I mean, that's the plot. Yes. How about you tell us what the plot is? So, I will say, I think this movie has some interesting ideas and some interesting notions. Granted, what is interesting about this movie is pretty cribbed from Val Luton. Yeah. Um, because what this movie kind of is about at the start of the film. It's not about this by the end. But at the start of the film is it's kind of about the, like, emotional traumas and, like, post-traumatic stress of someone who is, like, descended from a horror movie character. Yeah. Right? And in that way, it's taking its cues mostly from Curse of the Cat People. Except that uh, this is not about a little girl. This is about an adult grown woman. And her name is... Nina McCarran? Sorry, Nina? Nina. Nina, with an <laughs> N. Uh, and she's played by Rosemary LaPlanche. And when the movie starts, she's in a coma. And that's kind of where she'll be for most of the movie. But when it starts, uh, it appears that she was discovered unconscious and, like, brought to the sheriff's office and they called, like, the town doctor in, Dr. Elliot, and he's taking a look at her, and they're questioning the people who saw her when she came into town, and they're trying to assemble, like, who this person is and, and where she came from. And she was found unconscious by, you know, old Dr. Carruthers' house. Now, this is the Dr. Paul Carruthers, who uh, was played by Bella Lugosi in Devil Bat. And we get, like, some exposition about who he was, and in this version of the story... Uh, he was a scientist who came to the town of Wardsley, uh, not Heathville, to do his experiments on making giant bats. And then uh, some people were killed by his giant bats. Uh, and somewhere along the way, he was also convicted of murdering people with said bats, like guilty. Uh, but he wasn't executed or locked up or anything because uh, he was killed by his own bats. So we never got his side of the story, apparently, even though there was a trial, maybe? Hard to say. Anyways, um, because she was found outside this guy's house, uh, the doc and the sheriff go to the abandoned Carruthers place, which no one has moved into in the past six years, um, to try and find some clues. They find her purse, and inside is her passport, which says that her name is Nina McCarran. She's from Scotland. She came to the United States by way of Canada, and her mom, Mrs. McCarran, or Miss McCarran, was Dr. Crother's wife. And so she is actually the 
daughter of Dr. Crothers. Dun, dun, dun. The movie literally does that. Yeah. Um, now, in this version of the story, uh, I guess in the years that have passed since the uh, Dr. Crothers incident, because he was sending giant bats off to kill people, the rumors started that he was like a vampire, I guess because he looks and sounds exactly like Dracula. Um <laughs> And so he gained the nickname the Devil Bat. So in this movie, the Devil Bat is Dr. Carruthers, not necessarily the giant bat that he made to go fly off killing people. So that makes Nina the Devil Bat's daughter. Dun, dun, dun. So because she's um, non-responsive, uh, Dr. Elliot goes to visit a Dr. Clifton Morris. And Dr. Morris has, like, a big mansion, like, on the outskirts of Wardsley, but he works and, like, practices in New York. This is, like, his, like, country home in Westchester. And I got the impression that they had just moved here. Yes. Dr. Elliot's like, hey, you're a renowned psychologist. Can you come take a look at this girl? And Morris isn't super interested at first until Elliot mentions, like, she's the devil bat's daughter. Dun, dun, dun. And so he brings uh, Morris over, and Morris looks at her and basically figures out, like, okay, so she came from, you know all the way from Scotland to come see her dad, didn't know her dad was dead, didn't know her dad was the devil bat, found this out because she showed up at the house and no one was there, and the taxi driver was like, oh yeah, your dad's dead. And then also there was a newspaper in her dead dad's house with the headline, Devil Bat Found Guilty of Murder, which feels like a weird thing to be in his house. But anyways, so she had like a huge nervous shock and passed out. And, like, that's why she's in a coma. She had, like, a, a mental break. So Dr. Morris is like, yeah, you know what? Just, like, put her in a hospital, give her plenty of rest, water, sunshine, whatever, like a plant do, <laughs> and she'll be fine. Like, she's just had a big shock. That's really all this is. She'll come out of it. She'll be okay. And so they do that, and they put Nina in the hospital, and Nina wakes up in the middle of the night to a hallucinogenic vision of the giant bat from the devil bat flying into her room and she freaks out and somehow manages to run in a terror all the way from the hospital to dr morris's house don't ask me how she knows where dr morris lives it's a small town when she's in this like state of panic but she runs all the way there uh, where she is received by dr morris's wife ellen we meet Ellen in the process of her writing a letter to a soldier named Ted Masters, who is coming home soon. And my initial assumption was that she was having an affair on Dr. Morris with Ted, because Ted looks like he's about the same age as her, but we find out later that's not the case. Ellen receives Nina into her home and puts her up in, like, a guest room and calls her husband Cliff, because Cliff is in New York, where his practice is. Now, Cliff is not actually at work. Uh, after getting the phone call from Ellen and being like, yeah, okay, cool, I'll be there right away, um, he's actually spending the evening with Myra Arnold, who is his mistress. Dun, dun, dun. Now, despite the last name Arnold, Myra is from Eastern Europe somewhere, judging by her accent, but it turns out that she and Dr. Morris have been in love this whole time, but he married Ellen for her money because Myra's just like a poor immigrant. And they've just been having a relationship on the side. And Myra's like, you know, I'm sick of this. Just, like, get a divorce and marry me. And Cliff is like, no, can't do that. And Myra's like, well, then don't come to me until you've figured something out. 
So Morris comes back to his house, uh, sees Nina, is like, okay, well, clearly she needs some TLC, and is persuaded. (laughs) Just let me put on that album. Don't go chasing waterfalls, Nina. (laughs) And he's persuaded by his wife to let Nina stay at their house for her recuperation, even though Morris doesn't think that's really, like, a great idea at first. Through some more interviews with Nina... Um, Morris is able to kind of piece together her story a bit more. Apparently, Dr. Carruthers was from Romania, which would explain his accent, if not his name. And he initially came to Scotland, married Nina's mom. Then Nina's mom died when Nina was like four, and Carruthers jetted to America and left Nina behind. And basically, the Scottish village where she grew up was like, well, he was a vampire and killed nina's mom because nina's mom had like anemia and like died of blood loss and so everyone's like well your dad was a vampire kid and that's what she heard her whole life growing up he also was still doing his bat experiments at the time yes so, like it wasn't just like totally yeah, yeah. out of the blue mm-hmm. well yeah <laughs> and he also looked and sounded exactly like dracula and his wife died of blood loss anyways dun 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 so <laughs> nina grew up in the UK, uh, worked for the government during World War II, survived the bombings, and then decided to seek out her dad because she had no one left in the world, and then came home, find out her dad was a weird, evil murderer, and... Also dead. Right, also dead. And this is bringing back all these childhood memories of, you know, him being accused of being a vampire, and so that's interacting with this new information, and it's causing her this severe mental strain. And Morris is like, cool, 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 so we'll, we'll fix this right out. Later, Morris and Dr. Elliot and Ellen are having, like, a casual conversation where Ellen's like, what is a vampire anyway? Which, like, Ellen, do you not go out much or... Like, it's 1946. Yeah, that's, uh, that's why she's, she's rich. She doesn't spend all of her money, all her dimes to go see a movie. Sure. So, Dr. Elliot's like, oh yeah, vampires, you know dead, need to feed on blood of the living, stake through the heart, blah, blah, blah. And Ellen's like, oh, so a living person couldn't be a vampire. And Elliot's like, no, 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 that's more like a Renfield thing where the vampire, like, possesses the person and gets them to, like, kill people for the vampire. You know, they've come into the vampire's thrall. And Ellen's like, huh. And Dr. Morse is like, hmm, hmm, fascinating, yes, interesting. Hmm." He turns into Kermit. And so uh, Morris continues trying to help Nina. She's getting better. She's on the mend. And that's when Ted Masters comes home. And he is not, despite looking the exact same age as Ellen, because the actors are the same age, uh, he is not her lover. He is actually Ellen's son from a previous marriage. And Cliff is his stepdad. Dun, dun, dun. So this is John James, and he's 36 years old, and he's playing Ted Masters, who's like 26 years old. Meanwhile, Molly Lamont is also 36 years old, but she's playing Ellen, who's like 46 years old, maybe? So it's weird. Sexism. Yes. It also makes like a scene where Ted is trying to tell his mom that like her new husband is no good for her like, a little bit weird. It's got some of that Folgers coffee commercial energy. Um, (laughs) Ted doesn't like Cliff. It appears that maybe they haven't liked each other, like, going back a ways. Never liked each other, really. But Ted does like Nina, and Nina likes Ted, and they're falling in love. And Cliff is like, this ain't good. We can't have this. And Ellen's like, why not? And Cliff is like, because I'm her doctor, and I said so. Now, Dr. Morris is trying to control control Nina's 
environment to a very great extent. And on the one hand, this is unfortunately indicative of the way that, like, psychologists and mental health professionals treated women during this time period, a very kind of overbearing parental kind of attitude, controlling your every movement and thought. On the other hand, like, to give psychologists the benefit of the doubt, like, Nina's condition is one wherein, like, outside stimuli is causing her, like, a mental break, and so, like, controlling what stimuli is coming into her does make some sense. Like, there's a scene where Morris gets angry at her for reading a book about life after death, because, like, her whole thing is she's afraid her dad was a vampire and it would upset her. Like, I get it. It makes him look like a dick to be like, you can only read what I tell you to read, but to give him the benefit of the doubt, I get it. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I shouldn't be giving Dr. Morris the benefit of the doubt, Absolutely. though. So, Nina is having these issues where she keeps having these dreams about devil bats, uh, which mostly take the form of stock footage from the original movie, but with, like, woo dream-like filter. filter put on it. And she's, like, clearly seeming to be blacking out and doing things in her sleep because uh, Morris keeps giving her, like, sleeping pills and some tonic every night. And she doesn't ever remember drinking the tonic, but she wakes up every morning and, like, the tonic has been drank. And the doc's like, oh, yeah, you're clearly just doing that at night and you just don't remember it. So she's convinced that she's blacking out and doing things at night. She's convinced her dad was a vampire. She's starting to build this psychosis in her mind that she is under her dad's thrall, uh, that she is like a Renfield type. This all climaxes with an incident where she stabs Ted's dog to death with some scissors. And Dr. Morris is like, okay, like, clearly, like, she's become a danger to herself and others. We need to send her away to a sanatorium in New York where she'll be safe. And meanwhile, like, Ted's like, right, but I want to marry her. And, you know, things are just getting very melodramatic. Then the next night, Nina has another incident where she kills something in her sleep with some scissors. Only this time, it was Ellen. Dun, dun, dun. So Ellen's dead, and Nina is in jail in New York. Or, like, in a psychiatric hospital, but, like, you know, under guard in New York. They send her to Arkham Asylum. And... Ted's like, well, no, she couldn't possibly have done this because I'm in love with her and she's pretty and nice and there's no way that it could possibly be her and I think it's probably my dad because I don't like him very much. And the town doctor, Dr. Elliot's like, well, that's not really anything. Like, that's not evidence. That's not anything at all. The way Ted's going to prove it is by finding Dr. Carruthers' notes, which no one ever found after his death. And they search Carruthers' house and there's like a empty safe where the notes would have been, but they're not. But Cliff has this like walnut that he like uses as like a stress reliever. It's like a stress ball, but it's a walnut. And uh, Ted finds it on the ground in Crother's lab. And he's like, okay, I know my dad's been here. Stepdad. Stepdad. Uh, so he starts searching all of Cliff's places for the papers. He can't find them at home. He concocts, like, an excuse to go to his stepdad's apartment in New York. Uh, can't find them there. So then, finally, he gets the idea to talk to Myra, his dad's mistress. Because he finds evidence for it in the papers. In yes. In papers in his apartment. Yes, he finds evidence in his stepdad's apartment that Cliff is planning to elope with Myra in Cuba. 
And so he brings this to Myra. He's like, hey, Myra, you've been like a friend of my mom's going way back. The fuck is this about? And Myra's like, yeah, I, fuck, I don't know. I wasn't planning to elope with him. Ted's like, okay, but were you seeing him? And Myra's like, yes, uh, we've been seeing each other this whole time, you know, but he hasn't talked to me since your mom died. And Cliff's like, okay, well, I think he killed mom so that he could marry you, but still keep mom's money in inheritance. And Myra's like, right, but you have like no evidence of that. Ted searches Myra's apartment, finds Carruthers' notes there because Cliff just leaves shit lying around, apparently. And in probably the biggest shocker of the movie, Dr. Carruthers' notes exonerate Carruthers of being a murderer. Dun, dun, dun. That's right. He didn't kill those people in the devil bat. The bats just got out on their own accidentally and killed those people. And then he was killed by his own bats before he had a chance to defend himself. Yep. That's how I remember the movie going down also. (laughs) So Ted develops the theory that Cliff found these notes and that if Cliff had really wanted to heal Nina of her trauma, he would have shown them to Nina because they proved that her dad was not an evil vampire. But by not showing them to Nina, that was a way of encouraging Nina to think her dad was an evil vampire and thus make Nina think that she killed Ellen. Basically like gaslighting Nina into a point where she would believe it would be reasonable that she killed Ellen in her sleep. Um, But in fact, Cliff killed Ellen and this was the perfect crime. So... Ted confronts Cliff with this, and he, like, he tries to pull, like, a, like, Agatha Christie, like, I'm gonna catch you in my web kind of thing, where he, like, confronts Cliff with his theory and the evidence, and he's, he's asked the Dr. Elliot and the sheriff to come over, and he's already given the sheriff Carruthers papers, and it's like, see, like, I've caught you all in the act, and Cliff's like, wait, so, back up. What you've caught is... I had Carruthers' notes, uh, which I guess it is a crime that I didn't hand them over to the sheriff when I found them. Bad on me. I didn't find anything in them that seemed useful or pertaining to the case, so I ignored them. Uh, and I left my walnut there. That that feels like a... Um, An entendre. And so, like, you have nothing. Like, you have a bunch of happenstance and, and circumstantial evidence and conjecture. So, you know, that's not anything. And... The sheriff's like, I mean, yeah, he's got you there. This doesn't prove anything. Like, it could still have been Nina. There's nothing here that proves a damn thing. And Ted's like, well, fuck. Except these pills you've been giving Nina weren't sleeping pills after all. I took them to a medical lab to be examined. It turns out they're like hallucinogenic super dream pills that like not only give people like movie style dreams about the devil bat, (laughs) but also render it impossible for that person to, like, move. They're totally catatonic while they're having these super dreams, meaning it's impossible for Nina to have killed Ellen. Or the dog. Now, this doesn't necessarily prove that Cliff murdered anybody either. It just proves that Cliff was giving her weird pills that would have exacerbated her condition rather than making it better. But... Cliff does that typical movie villain thing where he freaks out and pulls a gun on everyone, which then pretty much confirms that, yes, he is, in fact, the bad guy. And he shoots at some people and then runs out the window, and then the sheriff pulls his gun and shoots him, and he's dead. And then, um, you know, 
Ted goes back to Nina, who's like, right, but I'm still crazy, and not, my mental health problems haven't been fixed at all. In fact, they've been gotten worse because my psychologist was gaslighting me. And Ted's like, don't worry about that, dear. I'm a man. It'll be okay. I love you. The end. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's this weird thing in the movie where the quote-unquote justification mm. that, well, Nina, of course, would be just as bad as her father is because of like inherited criminal tendencies. Yeah, yes, the, which is also why it's like a we have to prove that Bella Lugosi didn't kill anyone, and b why the fact that Ted is a stepson of Cliff is important. Right, because then that's how his dad can be a criminal with Ted still being a good person. Yeah. yeah, this movie firmly believes in the idea that like murder is an inherited trait. Yeah, this movie has some problematic ideas about inheritance. The other thing about it is, like, they're not necessary, because the psychological rationale that Nina is, like, killing people because she's been driven over the edge by learning that her dad was the villain in a horror movie, like, that's enough. You don't need this idea that, like, oh, also being a murderer is an inherited trait. Yeah. And as you said, it then puts them in this weird position where they have to retcon Bella Lugosi into having been innocent this whole time in order to, therefore exonerate Nina. And it feels like they're gaslighting us. The audience. We, we saw that movie. movie. Yeah. He is not. Like, <laughs> he, he was is 100% guilty. He, the, the bats only attacked people with a specific perfume scent that he put on them. Because he invented that perfume scent. And perfume, that company, none of that is brought up in no, this movie. No, In fact, that is also what is retcon. Yes. Uh, also... I think, like, to kind of further the idea of, like, no, she's going to be the daughter of a vampire. Mm -hmm. um, the writers were like, okay, well, what's, what's like, a lady vampire name? What was the name of that chick in Dracula? Uh, Mina? No, no, that, that can't be right. It must have been Nina. Name her Nina. One thing I do like about it, uh, other than just, like, the general idea that was stolen from Luton, I do like that... We, as the audience, were given, like, the evidence for why Cliff is the bad guy early on. Like, we see the scene with him and the mistress that gives him his motivation. But we don't get any scenes where, like, where we're with Cliff being like, Yes, and then I'll gaslight her, and it'll be the perfect crime. <laughs> like, we just see scenes with him being with Nina. And, like, yeah, he's, like, a little bit controlling and a little bit like, overbearing, and he's saying to her, like, no, Nina, like, you're wrong, I'm right, do what I tell you, think what I tell you to think, but because that's just kind of how psychology was in this time period, you know, you can read it, and you, as a modern audience, you're watching it being like, this guy's a dick, but you're not necessarily watching those scenes being like, ah, he's a murderer. Or has some kind of ulterior motive. Exactly. So when we are doing the investigation, we're doing it along with Ted and following it with him, and we don't know for sure that Cliff is the bad guy until everyone else does. And that was something I appreciated mm -hmm. about this movie, because nothing is more boring than watching someone detective out a mystery you already know the answer to. Absolutely. I also think that while this movie, you know, I do applaud it for how it's structured with the points you just made. Mm. Um, I don't think it, I would consider this horror because so much of the movie is focused on the drama yes. around Nina. 
not Nina's trauma or the horror that she's possibly going through. Right. But like, oh, this loveless marriage. Oh, he's cheating on his wife. Oh, the son doesn't like the father. Yeah. Oh, this or that. It's, it's a lot of family melodrama. Yeah. What this is, is this is a psychological thriller. Okay. Like, I, like pure and simple, that's what it is because it's about... You know, this girl who's being gaslit by her psychologist so that he can pull off a murder while meanwhile this other guy is like investigating the case and figuring out the truth. And while the fact that we don't know for sure that Cliff is the bad guy makes the mystery structure better, it does take away any kind of horror aspect because for it to be a horror movie, there needs to be some sort of malevolent force kind of hanging over the characters, threatening them. And because we don't know who the villain is... That's not the case. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's mostly because the movie isn't centered on Nina. Like, she's the title character, and she's who we're introduced with. But as we said earlier, she ultimately just becomes like a MacGuffin in the story. If you had a movie that was centered on her and her experiences and her worries and her fear that she committed these murders and all of those things, like, that might be a horror movie. But structured the way it is, this is a thriller. And it's a psychological thriller, specifically. Um, you know, it's more akin to a movie like Gaslight. Um, yeah. And, I mean, like, it's... I, I understand why the movie fell into that, because in Luton, mm -hmm. his type of horror kind of straddles that line. Like, we've seen with Ghost Ship, yes. where we don't consider it horror, but it is, on the, it is a thriller. Yes. And I think... Where this movie kind of gets lost is, as you said, like, it gets really involved in all this family melodrama and all these kind of overwritten characters, and it kind of forgets... It gets off track. It feels like Wisbar and Griffin J were, like, handed a scenario, and it's like, make a movie based around this premise. And then it kind of, like, got away from them, because by the end of the movie, it feels like the movie that you end with is not the movie you started with, right? Absolutely. Um... You know, once the murder plot really happens, once Nina has been framed for Ellen's murder, like, she practically disappears from the movie. And as I kind of made fun of during my plot synopsis, like, the issue of curing her is just kind of... Hand-waved away at the end. Exactly. And, like, we don't see any more of her uh, nightmares, which are kind of the most, like, horror-esque sequences in the movie. Which are also still just borrowing from an actual horror movie. Right. <laughs> In addition to kind of the dangerous ideas about inheritance this movie has, I mean, I also kind of worry about the way it depicts psychologists. Yeah, it's hard enough to convince someone or yourself that, like, you need help and should go seek out help, but then to depict that help as malicious mm -hmm. or manipulative. And, and as I kind of said earlier, like, while it is true that, like, women weren't really super respected as people with agency um, by mental health professionals of this time period, um, and, you know, that's one of our problems with this movie is how little agency Nina has. On the other hand, saying that, like, oh, well, the reason your psychologist does these things is because he's trying to use you to commit murders or whatever um, strikes me as a little bit worse in 1946 than if this had been the plot in, like, 1936. Like, this idea... If you look at, like, movies from the 20s and 30s, you'll see, like, evil psychologist is kind of, like, a stock character where it's, like, they're kind of depicted as, like, snake oil salesmen who take advantage of rich women or something. But in a post-war period where you have all these people coming home with PTSD 
and you have all these people who have real psychological issues coming home and having to learn how to deal with them, this depiction of a psychologist feels a little bit, like, more irresponsible. I mean, I think it was still irresponsible in 1936 because of the trauma of World War One. Oh, sure, sure. Um, and, I mean, like, you have shell shock mm-hmm. with that. Um, but I, I completely agree with you. And I, I also would just like to call out that as much as this film is borrowing from cat people, like, cat people was also kind of bad at depicting psychologists. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he just kind of wanted to get into Irina's pants. You yeah, know? yeah, for sure. I mean, on its own, I think, like, the movie makes sense. Like, the script is reasonable. Um, the character arcs all kind of make sense. The cast acquits themselves pretty well. Like, um, Michael Hale, who plays Cliff, this is his, like, first movie, and he wasn't a professional actor, and I think he does fine in the role of, like, evil psychologist especially if this is like his first and he he he's not professional yeah i think he did a really good job then Rose... i think it would be very easy to lean into kind of a maniacal nature mm-hmm. and, and he doesn't do that exactly he just plays him as like very erudite and intellectual and you know that helps in making it not obvious that he's like the bad guy um rosemary laplanche does pretty well given that most of what she has to do in this movie is kind of like lie down in bed and look worried. Yeah, look upset while falling asleep. But on the other hand, like, I think that, you know, she successfully managed to elicit sympathy from me in depicting someone who, like, has mental health issues and is worried about those issues, like, getting worse. And, like, that fear of, like, well, what if I'm not in control of my actions? And that kind of stuff. Like... Where this movie disappoints is just that it's not the movie you think it's going to be. Yeah. Because this movie isn't about Nina and isn't a very good sequel to Devil Bat. It's a terrible sequel to Devil Bat. Because, like, it needs to rewrite Devil Bat in order for its story to work. Yeah. And so, like, the movie works better, you know, on its own. Coming to it from Devil Bat, you expect it not only to follow that story, but also to still be a horror movie. Whereas if, like, this was just presented to me as its own thing, that would maybe change how I view it, right? Yeah. I do just want to go back again. We've gone back to it several times now about the inherited murder tendencies. That feels like an idea that rubs shoulders with eugenics ideas. Oh, no, no, that is eugenics okay. ideas. That's 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 you're not off base with that. Like, okay, that's, cool. I, yeah, there was yeah. a very strong notion for a long time that criminal tendencies were inherited and therefore criminals should be... Um, Sterilized? Thank you, which was done in Absolutely. prisons for years. Yeah. So, yeah you're, you're, yeah, you're not wrong on that. And again, this kind of comes back to, like, it just... The script feels like it's a script with a lot of very old-fashioned ideas... That, like, by 1946 are, like, ideas that were always wrong, but but that by 1946 are wrong or old-fashioned, like, even for the time. If you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I do. And I think it's also kind of showing why Luton works. Mm. Because he's always, at least it feels to me, looking forward Mm. with his ideas and what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And it just sort of feels like Wisbar was kind of trying to do a little too much here because as I said, like the focus kind of wanders. Like sometimes this is a movie about this, like family's issues, right? More than it's about the psychological stuff or the murder mystery or whatever. 
Yeah, I think Bisbar is trying to find where he fits in Hollywood. Yes. And given that, you know, like in a couple of years he turns to TV and it seems like he has really good success there. Like, Mm -hmm. I think he'll find his footing eventually, but this, as well as Strangler in the Swamp, does kind of feel like he's like, I'm not quite sure where my spot is in this industry here. To be fair, like, I'd rather see something like this that sort of has too many ideas or is, like, too ambitious and doesn't really pull it off, as opposed to kind of the, like, William Bodine approach of, like, fuck it, nothing matters anyways, let's just get this shot. Yeah, or even House of Horrors from last week. Right, yeah. So, that's that's kind of all I really have to say about this one. Same. We're um, agreed you, that it's not horror. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking it was more mystery drama, mm-hmm. but I definitely see where you're coming from with the psychological thriller. In any case, it's not horror. Yeah, I think I think that's fair to say. So, this will be going on the miscellaneous part of the list, but if you want to see that list, if you want to find episodes that we've mentioned today, see what other films are on the miscellaneous list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can also find an appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. Or reach out to us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed. And if you'd like to help the show out, you can do that by telling a friend about the show, uh, by leaving a rating or a review on the service that you listen to the show on, or by heading to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can sign up to be a monthly patron uh, for as little as a dollar a month, and at the 5 and $10 level, get access to bonus content that comes out from us, uh, including deleted audio from past episodes. We are currently sitting, I think, at about $45 a month, and when we hit $150, which is our first Patreon goal, we will start doing bonus episodes, one a month, on horror-adjacent movies, uh, films that are related to horror but aren't horror. Um, stuff. Maybe like Gaslight. Right, like Gaslight, um, either the 1940 version from the UK or the 1944 version from the US. Yeah. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. <laughs> well... This is a fine episode to open up 2020. Uh, What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are heading over to Republic Pictures, and we are watching uh, their film that is completely filled with original ideas and is not in any way ripping off anyone else's previous movies. Okay, good. Catman of Paris. Huh. A completely original idea. Well, I like cats, so... (laughs) Maybe this will be good. We'll see. Uh, join It'll us- be our jellical choice. Oh. Oh, no. That's what that whole episode's going to be, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.